took me a minute to get my mask off. It got all tangled up with all <laughs> the, uh, the mic. Um, I want to thank you and other members of this congregation for your incredibly generous welcome and gracious hospitality. It's really, truly wonderful to be here. And as I said in the sanctuary, uh, this is the first time I've been able to worship in person since the beginning of the pandemic. My home church does not have in-person worship yet, uh, so I've, I'm finding it incredibly moving uh, to be here. And and uh, Willow, uh, where's Willow? Can, can I take you and the band with me when I go? I just uh, really... <laughs> Um, really wonderful. And I know you've been considering together the questions that Jesus asks, and Jesus loved to ask questions. And uh, he asked, in fact, 307 questions in, in the Gospels. And he asked many more questions than he was asked, and he answered very few of the questions he was asked. And of those 307 questions, one of them is embedded in our scripture uh, today. And I'd like for you to consider when you hear this, uh, in what spirit and what tone was Jesus uh, asking this question? Uh, Because that in itself is an interpretation. So listen for the word of God in these words from the 14th chapter of Mark. While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, the woman came with an alabaster jar of very costly ointment of nard. And she broke open the jar and poured the ointment on his head. But none were there, but some were there who said to one another in anger, Why was the ointment wasted in this way? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has performed a good service for me. For you always have the poor with you, and you can show kindness to them whenever you wish, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could, She has anointed my body beforehand for his burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. Here ends the reading. May God bless it to our use and to our understanding. No wonder the disciples are confused. After all, the call to help those in need looms large in Jesus' life and words. Jesus had told them in the clearest terms that it will be those who feed the hungry, clothe the naked, and shelter the homeless who will be received by God with benedictions. And those who fail to do so, who will be sent away empty. The disciples also remembered the way Jesus responded to the rich young ruler when he asked about how he might inherit eternal life. Go, sell all you have, give it to the poor, is what Jesus had said. Then come and we'll talk about eternal life. That seemed clear enough. But now the disciples are eating a simple supper with Jesus 
when in bursts a woman carrying an alabaster jar filled with precious ointment, the kind of ointment that was usually reserved for the anointing of a king or the burial of a wealthy person. This woman, whether through nervousness or to make clear that she's not going to leave the room until the ointment is all used, breaks the alabaster jar and pours the ointment over Jesus' head. It strikes the disciples as an unconscionable extravagance. But what makes the whole episode so difficult to take in is that Jesus does nothing to stop her and says nothing. He simply receives the gift. The disciples seethe and mutter with righteous indignation and then ask this question, why was the ointment wasted in this way? It must have cost almost a year's wages. It could have been sold and the money given to the poor. Perhaps the disciples thought that Jesus was using the occasion to give them a kind of a test. So they reproach the woman. Surely that's the correct answer. But Jesus intervenes and asks a different question than they are asking, saying, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? That's Jesus' question. And in a sense, he is challenging his followers to substitute his question for the one they are asking. Their question is one of judgment. Why was the ointment wasted in this way? While Jesus' question is one of compassion. Why do you trouble her? Well, make up your mind, the disciples must have been tempted to say. We thought you were against this kind of extravagance. No wonder they're confused. And there are times when Jesus' disciples still seem confused. The largest Gothic structure in the world is the Cathedral of St. John the Divine in Manhattan. According to the original design made at the beginning of the 20th century, the cathedral was to have two ornate, graceful, towering spires. But then the money ran out. And before sufficient funds could be raised to complete the construction, the neighborhood changed. St. John the Divine became a Gothic island in a sea of poverty. The plans to build the spires were shelved. The cathedral devoted much of their resources to serving the poor of the neighborhood. In the 1960s, there was even talk of selling the cathedral using a small portion of the proceeds to build a much more modest structure and dedicating the balance to the cathedral's outreach ministries. Fast forward a couple of decades. The next bishop declared that now more than ever, the neighborhood needs a symbol of God's majesty and the glory of God. The old plans were dusted off and they began to build the spires, importing the finest Italian marble and the most skilled Italian stonemasons to do the job, which were projected to cost millions of dollars. In one historical moment, 
They're talking about selling the property and giving the proceeds to the poor. And the next, they pour millions into an architectural extravagance. Are Jesus' disciples still confused? The same tension also hits close to home and in countless ways. How can I squander over five bucks for a cone of haagen ice cream when little children are starving in Africa? How can a church justify spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on a pipe organ when there are villages in Latin America without, without sewers? How can a city support a symphony orchestra while public schools are underfunded. It seems that we too are confused. What are we to do? What does God expect? Beloved author E.B. White framed the issue with characteristic clarity. He writes, if the world were merely seductive, that would be easy. If it were merely challenging, that would be no problem. But I arise in the morning torn between a desire to improve the world and a desire to enjoy the world, that makes it hard to plan the day. In planning our days, confused as we may be about how we are to spend them, we sometimes try the the via media, the middle way. Perhaps we need to do things in moderation. Perhaps if the woman who approached Jesus had had a measuring cup, She could have used half the ointment to anoint Jesus and the other half and sold to give money to the poor. Does the Cathedral of St. John the Divine really need two spires? Wouldn't one be adequate? Or if they insist on having two spires, do they have to be so towering? Wouldn't stubby spires give sufficient glory to God? Or if we're having ice cream, does it have to be Haagen-Dazs? Couldn't it be a small scoop of non-fat frozen yogurt instead? And does a city really need a whole orchestra? Wouldn't a string quartet do? Or perhaps finding the middle way means that we are to serve the poor or sit in the concert hall and not get too carried away with either one. Serve the poor but don't let yourself get too involved. Enjoy the concert, but not too much. Is that the middle way? Haven't we always heard that all things should be done in moderation? But then this woman bursts in on the dinner and pours the whole jar of ointment on Jesus' head. She gave of herself, as Jesus said in another context, in good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. She did not pour out a few drops and say, well, I guess that ought to be enough for this occasion. Her expression of devotion was not smothered with caution and prudence. She did not count the cost. She was lifted clear out of arithmetic and into love, one of the greatest leaps a life can make. It was to that kind of extravagant gesture that Jesus said, she has done a beautiful thing. 
It seems that Jesus thinks we're meant to get carried away. In fact, at no point does Jesus praise or practice moderation. Jesus reserved his praise for the likes of the woman in the temple who gave two copper coins, everything she had. No moderation in that. When the rich young ruler approached him and he told him to sell all that he had and give the money to the poor, no moderation there either. When the wine ran out at a wedding feast, Jesus turned six water pots into wine, equivalent to 180 gallons of wine. More than enough for any party, an extravagant gesture. And there's no such thing as moderate extravagance. And Jesus is all for extravagance. Extravagant devotion. Extravagant celebration. Extravagant forgiveness. Extravagant service. Extravagant giving. And yes, extravagant receiving. Because only extravagance is an appropriate response to the God who pours gifts upon us all and always with extravagance. But if this is so, how do you plan the day? We cannot do all things with extravagance at the same time. The late British journalist Malcolm Muggeridge tells a wonderful story about Mother Teresa of Calcutta in his book, Something Beautiful for God. Muggeridge was a brilliant and hard-bitten journalist, a confirmed curmudgeon, an agnostic, who went to Calcutta to do a story about Mother Teresa, having heard about her remarkable ministries to the destitute and the dying of that city. While he was there, Muggeridge became keenly aware that Mother Teresa's order, the missionaries of charity, were always running out of money. And when they did, Mother Teresa would tell the sisters, then you must beg. Begging when it is for Christ is a very beautiful activity. Muggeridge writes, Despite this chronic financial stringency of the missionaries of charity, when I was instrumental in steering a few hundred pounds in Mother Teresa's direction, she astonished and, I must say, enchanted me by expending it on the chalice and patent for her new novitiate. So, she wrote, you will be daily on the altar close to the body of Christ. Hearing that story, we might well wonder, didn't that woman know any better? She could have used the money to serve the poor. But instead, she blew it all on a chalice and patent for some young novitiate and a jaded old journalist. And then, because of this foolish extravagance, she had to be back on the street the next day begging. This story reminds me that the Christian life is not about moderation or even about consistency. It is instead about rhythm. And our task is to reflect the extravagant dimensions of this great rhythm that pulses through all of life like a heartbeat. There is a time 
to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to save the world and a time to savor the world. To be sure, one can get stuck on one side of this dynamic rhythm, which can be about as dangerous as only inhaling or only exhaling. Perhaps the dangers of only savoring the world are so clear and so close that we need not dwell on them. Such lives are characterized by self-indulgence and extravagant self-concern. And no doubt that is the direction toward which most of our lives naturally incline. Our entire culture tilts in this direction, and there are profound dangers in doing so. But consider that there are also dangers in only serving the world. To only serve and never to savor the world is to be only the giver of gifts and never the receiver. It may be more blessed to give than to receive, but sometimes giving is a whole lot easier. Constant giving gives, puts us in a superior position. It means, among other things, that we never have to say thank you. And there's a certain arrogance in that. We're called to graciously receive a gift that is graciously given. That is particularly true of an extravagant gift such as the final movement of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. A walk among the resplendent autumn leaves of Vermont. Or a spring morning spent picking a pallet of wildflowers or sitting on a patio with a glass of iced tea with a fresh sprig of mint, letting the afternoon unfold at the leisurely pace of a novel, or turning up the volume when one of your favorite songs comes on the radio so that you can dance in your kitchen, or even a cone of haagen chocolate fudge with chocolate chips, double scoop. Any of those things can be a celebration of the God from whom all good things come. One's life depends on doing both, serving and savoring, giving and receiving. Not at the same time, of course, because that may not be possible, but each in turn at the appropriate time, which is another way of saying that one's life depends on being inconsistent in the way that all who both breathe in and breathe out are inconsistent. So the life of Jesus is not so much about consistency or moderation or even balance. Rather, it's about allowing the grand, extravagant sweeps of this dynamic to be reflected in our lives. Mother Teresa begged for pennies to serve the poor and then received a sizable sum as a gift and lavished it upon a seeming extravagance for a new novitiate, and then because the poor are always with us, the next day she's back on the street begging again. If that's inconsistent, it's the kind of inconsistency that reflects the great dynamic of the Christian life. 
giving and receiving and giving again, as inconsistent as only the two steps of a dance might be. Receiving and giving. Inhale and exhale. It is telling that the Cathedral of St. John the Divine, in that period when they return to the construction of those magnificent spires, did not cut back on their ministries to the poor. For a time at least, somehow their ministries to the poor were able to increase, reflecting God's extravagance in both directions. A deep inhale, a deep exhale, an extravagant gesture in one direction, and then in the other. It's not an easy, consistent approach to life. I think we're supposed to struggle with these matters, and Jesus characteristically does not let us off the hook. Only you know toward which direction your own life leans and which part of the message you need most to hear. After all, it was the woman whose life had been mostly duty whom Jesus encouraged in her moment of extravagance. But it was the rich young ruler whose life had been mostly extravagance to whom Jesus said, go sell what you have and give it to the poor. Wherever we might find ourselves, I think we're meant to struggle with the life-giving swings of this dynamic approach to life. That also means, as someone said in a different context, if you're not confused, on occasion at least, then you don't understand the situation. Our lives as Christians are not meant to be easy to plan or easy to carry out. Instead, we're meant to reflect the extravagance of God in giving and receiving, in savoring and in saving as we enjoy the world and attempt to serve it. That is, we were created to sway to the rhythmic patterns of God's love and God's grace. That, I think, is part of what Jesus was pointing to when he asked a different question than the disciples were asking, substituting his question for theirs. Amen.